and welcome to this edition of TBU's Back Books for Beginners, episode 157. My name is Jerry. And I'm Chris. And we are your hosts. On Bat Books for Beginners, we will examine story arcs with Batman and related characters. We'll give you the historical background of the book, break down the plot and the art, and give you our opinions so you can decide for yourself if they're worth a read. Today's Bat Book is As the Crow Flies, written by Judd Winnick. This covers the issues of Batman numbers 626 through 630. So Chris, tell us a little bit about this book. Thank you very much, Jerry. This story was collected in a trade paperback that was covered dated October 2004 that was priced at $12.95. And if you're interested, current online pricing for this volume is still in the same ballpark. At this point, me and Jerry are still covering Batman-related trade paperback material around the year 2004 time period. To give you some perspective, on or around this time, the Halle Berry Catwoman movie was being touted. But uh, for better Catwoman material, uh, Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale came out with Catwoman Win in Rome. Also, the Brad Meltzer and Rags Morales miniseries Identity Crisis was being released. Jerry and I will review that in a forthcoming podcast that I'm really looking forward to. Yeah. And over in Superman, the writing team of Brian Azzarello and penciler Jim Lee were giving us the For Tomorrow story arc. Also at this time, DC House ads were touting, and this is or warning us, depending on your point of view, <laughs> that the soon-to-be forthcoming War Games story arc in the Batman titles was coming soon. Mm-hmm. I'll give you some background on our creative team of As the Crows Flies from online sources and from my own personal recollections. The writer was the multi-award winning Judd Winnick. Winnick is currently 47 years old, and his first media notoriety came from when he was a cast member on MTV's Real World San Francisco back in 1994, which I'll confess right now, I didn't watch. No. Uh, did you watch any Real World on MTV, Jerry? I did not. I did not. No, that was something that passed me by, too. Okay, I first encountered Winnick's comic book work when he wrote for Green Lantern in the early 2000s. I really liked his stuff. Winnick would also have homosexual and or AIDS-related themes in his work, for which he would receive two GLAAD awards for his work on Green Lantern. Winnick would next work on Green Arrow, and this would be the run where he had Mia Dearden, who was HIV-positive, as the sidekick Speedy. He has had numerous DC and Marvel writing credits, including Batman, the Outsiders, Marvel's Exiles, Power Girl. Uh, back in New 52, he worked on Catwoman and Batwing, and he did the screenplay for the DVD Batman Under the Red Hood release. Uh, his most recent credit that I could find was in the Love is Love graphic novel. Uh. Yeah. Now, if you've been a varied reader of the Batman titles over the past 10 years or so, you've likely run into Dustin Gwynn's distinctive artwork at some point. Gwynn was the penciler on this story, and you may know him from his recent work on Detective Comics, uh, Batman Streets of Gotham, and the all-ages Batman Little Gotham book. Gwen has worked on Descender for Image Conducts, and let's see, rounding out this team, we have Richard Friends on Inks and Alex and Claire on Colors. Uh, let's see, doing some more research, the trade paperback of this volume has a three and a half out of five rating on Amazon. We're going to see where Jerry and I stand on this as I turn it over to Jerry to give us a plot of As the Crow Flies. Thanks, Chris. So let's get into the plot. As the Crow Flies. Mobster Big Tommy A is having a bad day. He's shooting his uh, automatic weapon at what he believes to be an underworld full of demons and monsters. They're all surrounding him and terrifying him. But in reality, he's just hallucinating. And Batman is trying to get his wild shooting under control in a Gotham uh, room. In terror, Tommy jumps out a window to his death. He hits the pavement and 
Tommy's had it. So they come along to take uh, the body away, but Tim, dressed as a female hospital worker, gets into the hospital and gets a sample of Tommy's blood so it can be tested for hallucinogens back in the Batcave. Now, did you get the? Let me get this straight. So he he's dressed in uh, drag here to uh, go on a discover. Yeah? Yes, he is. Yeah, he was. He was. He yeah. was. And uh, <laughs> well, good for him to try to uh, up his uh, disguise cred there. So okay, absolutely, it's good training for him. So a dirty bar owner by the name of Ruben. So he's with the mob, and he's meeting with three thugs that tell him that he needs to be paying more for them to allow his bar to operate. Uh, it's a protection racket, and he needs to up his payment. He resists the idea, and one of the thugs grabs his face, and Reuben, for some reason, starts to go crazy, and he starts running around Gotham in terror, and he's attacking innocent citizens, and he's causing havoc out in the streets. Batman arrives and tries to get him under control, but Reuben dies of heart failure before Batman can. They take a sample of Reuben's blood for analysis. Now, the three thugs that visited Reuben, they work for Penguin. Now, Penguin has apparently given them some powder that will invoke fear in people. However, the thugs forgot to dip the powder in water. So what they were doing was hitting their victims with a much higher dose than was expected or recommended. Oops. Yeah, sorry. You mean you, you just gave him a concentrated dose? Oh, no. Yeah, so this, that, I thought that how that was played out was really good. That was really funny. Yeah. Yes. Now, of course, this powder was given to Penguin by, can you guess? Scarecrow. I'll say, <laughs> yes, Jonathan Crane. Here we go. Yes, that's right. So this is a new concoction that he's come up with, completely different than anything he's done before. Now, another group of thugs are threatening to shoot a man in the head when Batman interrupts their little conversation. He's able to isolate one of them and gets the thug to admit that both Tommy and Reuben worked for the Penguin, and the Penguin has teamed up with Scarecrow. So Batman seems to be on to something here. Penguin blames the Scarecrow. John, Dr. Jonathan Crane for these overdoses. He says, you know, even though we didn't follow your directions, it's your fault for uh, getting us into this and uh, making these guys go crazy. So Crane returns to his lab where he sees the assess- assistant that Penguin has arranged for him, the frightfully pale Linda Fratawa, who's a former yeah. doctor who lost her license mysteriously. I like how you said that. The assistant penguin arranged for him. Listen carefully, folks. Okay. <laughs> That's right. It's a sneaking a little plot point in there. So Penguin is out heading out for a night on the town, and he uh, is picked up and interrogated by Batman, much to his uh, dismay. Now, Batman tells him that he knows that he's got something to do with what's going on in Gotham, and he's keeping a close eye on him. Penguin is shaken by this encounter, and he, when he gets back back home, he takes it out on Crane and blames Crane for all his uh, the problems that he's been having. Fratawa overhears this exchange and tells Crane that Penguin is being disrespectful. Uh, Crane is a talented scientist, a talented man, and who is Penguin to kind of talk to a man of his talent and accomplishments like that? All across Gotham. Penguin's bosses are being assassinated by a 20-foot-tall animated scarecrow. 
a giant, terrifying thing that bashes through windows and walls and just tears people apart. Batman investigates the killings of these uh, mob bosses, and he finds a surveillance video of this monster. Penguin hears about the giant scarecrow and berates Crane. What are you doing? How did this happen? You must be involved. Surely he's got something to do with the monster. But And don't call him Shirley, but yes. <laughs> oh, airplane. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> oh, well done, well done. Uh, so... Penguin decides to punish Crane, and he moves his operation, his lab, to a filthy building, a, a factory place that's just a mess, because he wants to be able to keep an eye on the scientists. And, Jerry, at this point, are you getting some sort of a vibe that there's like a possible love connection between uh, Crane and uh, the uh, Miss Fratawa here? Yeah, I, I think she's starting to... they're flirting. They're flirting a yes, little. Yes, and I think there's a scene here where Crane is uh, apologizing in earnest for the condition of these um, operating uh, location and this lab, so I thought that was a really touching scene there for yeah. what it was. She, she's telling him that he should be more respected and uh, seems to be very tender towards him, and he becomes start to become uh, protective towards her. Sorry, I can't take care of you better. Right. So Penguin meets with some of his remaining underlings, talking about the, all of the, their, their buddies getting killed, and the giant scarecrow monster attacks. So Batman shows up too, and he tries to kill the creature, but before he can, Batman gets hit with a high dosage of the fear toxin, and he tries to keep things under control, but ultimately uh, freaks out. Penguin is able to escape this mess, and Batman is able to get to the Batmobile and put it into autopilot and makes his way back to the Batcave. He lets Alfred know what's going on and says that he's en route. Alfred contacts Tim to get him to the Batmobile so he can keep an eye on Bruce. Batman is in the, in the Batmobile and he's hallucinating. He sees the Joker, he sees Two-Face, and when Tim arrives, he believes that Tim is the deceased Jason Todd. He sees Jason and... Uh, just it, it upsets him. So after much going on and crashing and crazy stuff happening, they finally are able to get Bruce to the Batcave and gives him some time to sleep the toxin off. Now, while they're in the Batcave, they hear a crash, and the giant scarecrow monster has gotten into Wayne Manor and is attacking Alfred. So Alfred, Alfred can take care of himself a little bit. And he's able to stab the creature and gets him away from immediate danger. Bruce and Tim battle the creature throughout Wayne Manor, and they lure it into the Batcave, where they have a lot of very dangerous weaponry at their disposal. Batman gets into a Bat-Robo suit, not, not the bunny suit, but a Robo <laughs> suit, and he's able to beat the creature into unconsciousness with the help of Alfred's uh, sharpshooting skill. He hits, Alfred gets him with some tranquilizers. So the creature morphs and shrinks, and it turns out it's Jonathan Crane. <gasps> Gasp! <laughs> the scarecrow is Jonathan Crane? Did I miss something? Yeah. <laughs> so Batman visits the penguin, and he accuses him, the penguin, of using a DNA-based serum developed by Linda Fratawa on Crane to turn him into this monster. Now, the rationale is, is that Penguin wanted to eliminate his captains that had gained too much power, but didn't want it to point towards him, so he was going to blame the Scarecrow. 
So Linda arrives and says that Crane's uh, scientific advances will allow her, she's got very pale skin, and it will allow her to finally be able to go out during the day and be exposed to the sun. And she leaps from the building. Obviously, she's somehow superpowered, and she calls herself Fright. Mm. Yeah, so back at the Batcave, Alfred has found a mask in the trunk of the Batmobile. He asked Tim if he's lost a mask. Tim says, no, I've got all, I've got all my masks. I don't know <laughs> what you're talking about. So Alfred puzzles over what this mask could be as the ghost of Jason Todd appears behind him. <laughs> Insane. Wow. Applause, applause. Nicely done yeah, with these thanks. recaps, Jerry. I, I, you're having fun with them, and I, I tell you, I can't think of anybody who does a better job with a lengthy recap than Jerry Green. This is awesome. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Chris. I love doing it. It's telling us. Well, story. I tell you, it does. Now, I think Dustin Gwynn, for me, when I first encountered his artwork, I, I confess I really was not a fan of his stuff. I, yeah. It sort of grew on me, though, and I have I had an appreciation with it. I think a few years back when I mentioned uh, the previous aforementioned uh, Batman Lowell Gotham, he did some gorgeous painted artwork on some covers there. Yeah. And um, I, I don't know. Where, where, do you, where do you land on Dustin Gwynn with an artist? Well, I think it's dark. I think it's... I don't want to say the word crude, but it's 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 ugly in a certain way. But mm-hmm. I think he's showing Gotham. It, it works as showing Gotham as a bad place and these people as bad people. I think that Penguin looks particularly evil and menacing. Uh, and so while I'm not traditionally or, or typically a fan of this kind of art style, I'd say at least it's very clear. You always know what's going on, and I think that's a big positive. And, you know, I think that it's just a little on the the grotesque or gruesome side. Yeah, I agree. And I want to tell, uh, uh, pick up a point you mentioned before, because I think in some of the works we've reviewed previously on this podcast, I've had some difficulty following the uh, transition in the artwork yeah. going from page to page, panel to panel. Um, there was some notice with some loss with the sequential form here in this. I did not have any issue when I uh, read this volume. I thought this was clear, concise. Uh, there was no ambiguity in, in any depiction of any of the scenes. Yeah. Uh, and I, I got to give him props for that. I do too. Uh, that's what, as I was first reading it, I, I wasn't grabbed by the art, but looking at it as a whole, I have to completely agree with your point. That's a really good point, Chris, that yep. this is one story that works all together artistically and narratively. Yes. And, you know, speaking of art, I, there is one thing I forgot to mention when I was covering some of the historical stuff on this. Uh, Matt Wagner did the covers for the individual artwork of these issues, and he did painted artwork. And the covers of, of this uh, series are just stunning. They are. He did a really, really great job. Um, Matt Wagner, if you're not familiar, uh, Grendel and the other works he's done, he turned in some gorgeous covers with this. And, in fact, I, I don't want to say it's maybe better than the story themselves, but um, – really really talented uh striking covers i i dare say maybe from the run of batman from numbers 600 to 700 these were some of the better covers that were turned in during this time period yeah the cover for 62 uh 626 is uh kind of a a giant bat 
in a Batman suit attacking with a series of smaller bats around them. It's really, it's like a watercolor, a grayish watercolor kind of look. It's really, yes. really striking. Indeed, indeed. That's a great point, Chris. Yeah, now, we've got two villains at play here. We've got the Penguin and the Scarecrow. Mm-hmm. Batman has a large rogues gallery. Uh, how, how would you rank the Penguin as, as one of your personal favorites or least personal favorite villains? I like the Penguin. I don't, I, because my touchstone is the, the Batman 66 television show. I thought sure. Burgess Meredith has always been one of my favorite actors. I thought his uh, depiction on that show is uh, insane. And I always like that. So I always come to a Batman story with the Penguin. I want to like the Penguin. I don't think he's always well depicted. I think he's often overused. I think here... There's a couple of things I, I I like about it. I think that he looks menacing in this. He's not a cartoon character. He is an evil mob boss and willing to do anything. He looks that way and he acts that way. And he has a real plan in this book as opposed to, you know, we've done recent stories that the, the characters... Uh, aren't really operating in a way that makes any kind of sense. In this story, Penguin does. He's got a plan. He's gonna, he wants to get rid of his mob bosses. He's gonna blame Scarecrow for it. And he's gonna solidify his power. And everything he does makes sense in that regard. I, I, I can't agree with you more, Jerry. This is a Penguin where you, see his critical thinking at play yeah. here. He, he, he does everything behind the scenes, but it's just a master stroke with, with the criminal genius behind the brain. You, 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 some people think of Penguin as a more cartoonish villain, mm-hmm. basically known for gimmick umbrellas, but they often overlook that uh, he is a very, very cunning foe yeah. with, with his plot and his brain, and I think that was executed here well done, and I, I, enjoyed, I enjoyed that part of it. One thing I want to go and cover, though, is the Scarecrow, because this is a serious rogues gallery Batman villain. Uh, what are your thoughts on the Scarecrow? Where does he land? Does he rank as your top five or even top ten uh, Batman villains, Jerry? I'm not a particularly big Scarecrow fan, and the reason is is that it always seems to be the same, uh, a similar thing. He's going to hit Batman or Robin or somebody with fear toxin, and they're going to freak out. And it's not that I don't like the character. It's that the it's a little bit of a one-note. He's got one weapon, generally, and you know kind of what's coming. So in this case, it's a little more clever than usual because what one of the things Batman... Um, um, hallucinates is Jason Todd and that becomes an important part as this goes forward yeah those hallucination scenes were really really well done I thought we had Joker I think we had Two-Face in there as well then we ultimately we had Jason and I thought they were really well done for me Scarecrow lands somewhere as a definitive top 10 I'm not sure if I if I put him in my top 5 list no. uh, I think to give respect to the foe though from a historical context I think this I'd have to do some research but I think he even may have may have appeared earlier than the Riddler for sure maybe even Two-Face for sure really? and he's always can, yeah he, I think it was World's Finest number 3 and the story was reprinted in um, one of those treasury editions of Batman and it was a really great great origin story uh, they, they brought the guy Character back in the Silver Age, he had a smattering of appearances in uh, the 70s and the early 80s. Huh. One of my favorite covers, I think, was Detective. I think it was 305. He did. I Paul Glaze did a really great cover of him. It was one of my. If I had a rank of favorite Scarecrow story, that would probably be an Ed because it also involved uh, Batgirl and Robin. Hmm. 
but as you say, it, this is a villain with one particular shtick. Uh, I, I don't know if I've seen a great depiction of this character. You know, he was even used in the 60s filmation cartoons once, but this was, it was a more of a buffoonish depiction uh, with Ted Knight. He, he almost had a scarecrow, or rather, excuse me, a Joker laugh than as opposed to something like this. And it was a very clownish appearance. And if you happen to see that filmation episode, I'd be curious to what people's thoughts were on it. Uh, but... To flip it, in an animated appearance, he did appear in the uh, – there was a Superpowers episode in 1986 called Fear, which uh, used the voices of uh, Adam West, respectively, as Batman, and they had a nice origin recap. And that was one of the more better uh, depictions of the character I think it was ever done in any medium before comic book or otherwise. Um, yeah. Uh, that said, like as you said, though, ultimately we're down to one – a one-note character, someone gets exposed to fear gas, and they're left to them coping with it. Yeah. I would like to see the Scarecrow perhaps uh, encounter some other villains in the DCU to see how they would fare to unlock their inner fears. I wondered if uh, what, what, what would an encounter be like, let's suppose, if uh, he somehow exposed Aquaman and made him afraid of water, then what? Or, or something like that, you know, where you have somebody in the JLU, and how, how would they uh, counteract someone like uh, a villain of uh, Crane's caliber? That's a great um, Yeah. Now, moving on, we had somebody named Linda Fratawa, who, was, yeah. who comes at the end of our story to be named Fright, and I did a little research. I couldn't... She had a smattering of appearances, I think, in New 52, but at this story, we're sort of led to believe this is going to be some type of origin story for a um, a new rogues gallery villain, but as far as I know, this was never never explored. <laughs> Did that sort of leave you uh, with a bitter feeling there, Jerry, or some kind of a sour end? Uh... Well, I think that a lot of times in a story that sometimes they're going to lead you to the next story. So as, when I'm looking at this one as a whole, I and I'm not reading it from comic book to comic book on a monthly basis in kind of real time, I... I would expect that I would see little loose ends of storylines leading me off uh, to to next month's adventure. So I would have expected, if I was reading this on a month-to-month basis, I would have expected her to come back pretty quickly. And so while I was reading this for this, I was fine with it. However, I think if I was reading it on a month-to-month basis, I would feel like I it just didn't make sense because if she doesn't really show up again i don't know what that was all about yeah and i thought we've i i I love female villains i want to see more of them in his rogues gallery and i thought oh great we've got somebody to look forward to but to be honest i didn't even recall her when when i when i when we got this assignment i go why does that name ring a bell oh yeah it's her and and yet we never got any any subsequent real appearances of them as far as i could tell and certainly uh in any rebirth that I know of that I've heard or seen. So yeah, it's too bad. She could have been a, an interesting villain. I thought that uh, she had an interesting start to this, you know, with her, she was able to connect with uh, Dr. Crane. And I thought it was a compelling situation that could have been built on, but nothing. One question I had for you, Jerry, was this: the I think this was something that you were going to bring up was the end reveal of Jason. Did you did you expect this in a sense of some sort of like uh, one of these um, ghost stories that ends in a 
was that a real ghost or a not real ghost type of thing, or or did you think this is actually yes, this this is the Jason is back? Uh, how did you take it? The way I took it was Jason is coming back. Maybe he's not back, but it's definitely uh, a flag. Remember that? Remember Jason? Well, guess what? <laughs> Maybe he's not quite as gone as we thought. Yeah. How, how what did you think? I thought. Uh, well. You know, at the time, I think we're still on the heels of Hush, and and when they showed Jason and Hush, or what we thought could have been possibly Jason and Hush, there was just this fan outcry of a huge reaction that they thought, oh yes, it is him. There can be no other way it is him. And I think I think it got such a huge fan response that DC kind of cowed out and uh, gave us gave us a hey, we got to figure out a way to bring this character back, and this probably is some foreshadowing to that effect. Yeah. Yeah, that's how I took it as foreshadowing. I, I don't know that I really expected, you know, the next issue was going to be more about Jason, but it's definitely a re- another reminder that this character is still of interest and we're going to be bringing him back, which ultimately, well, I don't want to spoil anything, but <laughs> they do. Mm-hmm. Well, I can't think of anything else that uh, we may have left out. Uh, this is the point where we come in the show to our rating. Jerry, do you want to go first, or should I go first this time? Uh, go for uh, it. Go. Take it. Okay. I, I'm going to go two and a half out of five on this. I thought this was just we, – we've got some nice covers. We've got some very good storytelling for what it is in, the, in Batman lore. Is it a must-read? No. I would not say that. I would think of things – I could put ahead of it, but uh, for for its time, uh, we've got a a five part story that I told I thought was told clearly and concisely with some very good artwork in places and a great character depiction of Penguin and what could have been a potential or could still be a potential decent uh, rogues gallery member in fright. So I'm going to land a two and a half out of five on this. How about you? Well, I think I'm going to, I've talked myself my rating up, I think in this, uh, as I'm talking about it a little more, when I first read it, I, I didn't feel like it really connected with me, but that's, this isn't my kind of story. So that shouldn't be a surprise. However, there is, as opposed to, you know, some of the stories that we've done very previously, there is a beginning, middle, and an end to this story. It is told uh, narratively and in writing. It's told uh, very well, and the art really lends itself to telling the story uh, also. There's some twists and turns and some devious Penguin moments that I appreciate. I also liked how Batman was trying to use psychology on Penguin to try to pressure him into making a mistake. So I think I will... I've talked myself up, I think, to a three. Not a great oh, very book. Good. Not a great book by any mean. Not means not a you know a must read. But I think it's a perfectly solid Batman Penguin story, uh, and not I don't think important to continuity um, unless you are uh, uh, kind of Tim Drake. I mean, um, a Jason Todd completist. <laughs> good point. Good point. Okay. Terrific. Well, that's all we have for today, and I hope everyone out there enjoyed this episode of the podcast. Please leave us comments so we know what you liked and what we can do better. Now, don't forget, we're part of the Batman Universe uh, podcast network, if you will, and TBU has a Patreon account. So 
please feel free, everyone, if you really like what we're doing here and you like what the other TBU podcasts, please go out to the uh, thebatmanuniverse.net and go to the Patreon account and donate a little bit of money so we can keep the servers running. Dustin, I swear I'll do it today. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> we, we swore to Dustin we would do it, and we yeah, sure yeah. did. <laughs> it's coming. It's coming. Absolutely. Now, don't forget some of the other TBU podcasts. They have the comic podcast, they have Everyone Loves the Drake, and they have Batgirl to Oracle, which Chris knows a little bit about. That's where I review the Batman 66 title, yes. Thank you very much. I review Batman 66. Presently, he meets Wonder Woman 77 on Batgirl to Oracle, and I am loving that series. Love it. Uh, love it, yeah. And I also am entering the Twitterverse now. You can find me at BTO and Bad books, so I am venturing into the Twitterverse. So please be kind. I'm <laughs> going to make a few mistakes there. So um, uh, please forgive any uh, social faux pas that I, I, I may do this, but I am finding some great people out there. Uh, and if I can uh, uh, give a shout out to my my friend over on the other side here, Jerry does some great reviews on the BatmanUniverse.net. He writes reviews for Mother Panic, Harley's Little Black Book, Batman sixty six. I also believe you review Gotham Academy. That's right. And is it Justice League of America? I've done a couple Justice League uh, reviews recently, just doing some fill-in work and enjoying it very much. Great. Jerry, are you on Twitter as well? Uh, I am. So what I've been doing is I've been tweeting some 140-character reviews at Professor Frenzy. So that's my handle on Twitter, Professor Frenzy. So I do some things. I cover my favorite DC books every week. I keep it positive. I, I tweet and talk about the things that I like. And I also get into, other than comics, I tweet a little bit about Dark Shadows, which is another one of my big uh, loves. And sometimes I get into indie comics. And I also occasionally tweet uh, about some horror movies that I see on Sven Gulli on Saturday night. So you can see me if you uh, are interested in, in watching uh, not always great horror movies like I do. I uh, come out to Twitter and go out to Sven Gulli and, and check out what's going on there. You're familiar with that, aren't you, Chris? I am very much so, having uh, lived in the Chicago area and still there. Uh, I've had the fortune to meet Rich Coes, who, a.k.a. Sven Gulli, a couple of years ago at Halloween. I couldn't have met a nicer gentleman uh, at any any venue. Uh, he's great. And this was, this, folks, i got to tell you something. I had no idea that uh, Jerry watched Sven Gulli. And here I've been watching him for years, and I just discovered once, once I got on Twitter that, oh, Jerry has been doing this all along. So I thought, oh, my gosh, this was something we had in common that we had no idea no going idea. before before meeting that we, we both were fans of Sven Gulli. So this was great. This was really a, a nice uh, coincidence when, when you get to meet somebody. Yeah. And speaking of um, like-minded people and uh, who have similar interests, uh, we've established a great relationship with the, the Sutherlands. Yeah. Who, uh, who? Yeah, we have. And uh, we like to give a shout-out to the Sutherlands, who also do podcasts, Warlord Worlds, Tracker Talk, and Xenozoic Xenophiles, uh, covering the respective artists, let's see, Mike Grell, uh, Ren Randall, and Mark Schultz, who did the work on Cadillac to Dinosaurs. Uh, since we've both been on Twitterverse, uh, we've received some numerous comments, too. We've got a nice shout-out from the Coffee and Comics podcast. Uh, Jerry, did we get any feedback from our old friend Ian Prime on the TBU website this time around? Uh, we absolutely did. And uh, he was uh, a little... I, I think I think Ian's getting a little nervous about Steph. 
So I can't blame him. I can't either because he knows what's coming. Uh, we we uh, talked about back in our uh, Robin Unmasked. Uh, yeah, and I just want to tell before you get there, Jerry. I just want to tell the reminders too. Oh yeah, yeah. we record our podcast every two weeks. So as of this recording, episode one fifty five just dropped where we covered Robert Unmasked. Sorry, so go ahead, Jerry. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you know, I think Ian's a little concerned about what may be coming up for uh, for poor old Stephanie Brown. So uh, he he made some comments about Willingham's writing about that story and I encourage uh, folks to go out and talk uh, talk to Ian and, and uh, discuss your opinions about what's going on with some of these stories coming up yeah Ian's a great review writer and he always sure. puts a, a great perspective I liked it when he uh, guested on the, uh, uh, the the TBU website podcast yeah. that was a, yeah he, he did a great film and I like Ed but uh, this was a Absolutely. this was a nice he was a great substitute I thought he always brings us some great insights so thank you very much Ian we appreciate that and we hope you continue on listening join us next time where we will be covering war drums now mm-hmm. things are getting close to war games so the opening salvo of this is war drums so Ian we're going to be gentle with you, but it's coming. <laughs> yes. Stand by, listeners. Uh, the, we, we, we hope you stay with us while we tread through the, the things that are war drums and war games in the forthcoming episodes. That's right. So we hope everybody joins us then. So I'm Jerry. And I'm Chris. And we're saying goodbye for now, and thank you for tuning in to Bet Books for Beginners. <laughs>